Okay, let's turn again to Isaiah 28. Hopefully we'll finish off another chapter tonight. And uh, as we keep progressing through... um, Let me read through the verses for tonight and then we'll pray and then we'll study. Reading from chapter 28 and verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place, and emma as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from Yahweh of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, that you would, you would bless us, bless our time. Help us to see the truth of your word, be encouraged, be enlightened, and be transformed. Pray that you would do your work here amongst us tonight. Amen. Amen. Okay. So... In Isaiah 28 so far, for context, he has already spoken at the beginning of the chapter of the agreement that the northern kingdom of Israel made with Assyria. Um, And how that, uh, or or rather how they were destroyed by Assyria. Sorry, that Judah made the... the, um, Judah made the agreement with, the, with Assyria and that not only was Israel destroyed but also Judah too. When we came to verses uh, 14 and following, we saw that in the future Israel was going to make a covenant. It was going to be to make a covenant. And this future covenant... Um, was going to be uh, parallel to the drunken leaders of the northern kingdom in the first 13 verses. Um, They had trusted in other nations. And again, with this covenant, they're going to trust in other nations. And they're specifically making a covenant with death and Sheol. And the idea is, is that they would try and escape death by making a covenant. But the irony is, is that they're actually making a covenant with death and death was going to come to them as a result. There are a few things as we come to verse 23 that I want to just clear up from the end of the previous section. Just a couple of things. This covenant that we saw last time, paralleled with the covenant in Daniel 9, 
that was seen here described in terms of the twofold defeat of the Philistines in verse 21. It came to an end in verses 21 and 22. And I just want to draw your attention to it for those who were here this morning. Because this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, from the predictions of the prophets, those who were here will remember, the predictions of the prophets, we know that scoffers will scoff in the last days. Why will they scoff? Because, because they're just going to think that what God is saying is just utterly ridiculous. Look at the last verse, the last two verses that we covered last time. Yahweh is going to rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused. There are the two victories against the Philistines in 1 Chronicles 14. And it says that he will do this to do his deed. Strange, almost like ridiculous, is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. In other words, God is going to do something that's going to seem strange, bizarre, ridiculous, unusual, unexpected. And what's going to be the response of the people? Look at verse 22. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. Don't be with the people against God. How will you know that they're against God? Because they're going to be scoffing the work of God when it is spoken. That's exactly what Peter is saying. And as I said to you, we see that in the Old Testament. And there is a decree of destruction from Yahweh um, Elohim of hosts against the whole land. And so the result of this future judgment is going to be that God will put judgment on the whole land, the whole earth. Now, all of this is building to a specific covenant with a specific nation at this specific time. But he's gone back in time and said, look at what happens with the northern kingdom. He's now going ahead and says, this is how things are going to end up. And what is the commonality in all of these things? The commonality is Israel placing their trust in other nations rather than in their covenant with God, seeking to make covenants with others. And so... With all of that in mind, let's turn to verse 23. In verse 23, what happens in this section is that God gives us some parables, as it were. Illustrations is perhaps a better word to explain what is going to happen with this covenant, with the annulling of this covenant, and with God's judgment of the earth. That's what the context is. And this is then what happens as a result. Verse 23. Give ear, hear my voice, give attention and hear my speech. God is saying, listen, hear. In other words, you need to learn from what has happened. You need to learn from what is going to happen. You need to learn. Pay attention, listen, hear my voice, hear my speech. This has been themes that have been constant for us, both in Old and New Testament recently. That the people of God show that they are the people of God, uh, give evidence of their faith through their heeding to the voice of God. 
And here's the thing that God says, and here's what they're to pay attention to. Verse 24. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, put wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emma as the border? Yeah, you all know about your emma, don't you? I've seen other translations use the word spelt. It's a type of wheat of some sort. Maybe it's camut. Those of you who eat your ancient grains, you might have other suggestions. But it's something of a similar ilk anyway. The the point that is being made in verses 24 and 25, the thing that we're to pay close attention to, is simply this. When a farmer sows, why do they sow? Or, or, sorry, correction. When they plough, sorry, jumping ahead of myself here. When they plough, why do they plough? They plough the ground to prepare the ground to sow the seed. That's what he's saying. He said, does he who ploughs for sowing plough continually? The the answer is very obvious. The ploughing is there for a purpose, for a reason. They're breaking up the soil, harrowing, if you will, as is spoken of later. They're opening up the ground and they're leveling it. And once that ploughing has been done, they, they will scatter the seeds, put the seed in, sow the seeds in the various places. Now, I, wa- I want us to understand this. That... Sowing of the seeds is the purpose of the ploughing. The sowing of the seed is the purpose of the ploughing. You don't just plough for the sake of ploughing. No one's trying to make holes in the ground for the sake of making holes in the ground. They're making holes in the ground to put the seeds in. There's a purpose to the ploughing. What this is telling us is, is, is quite simple. It is that God is doing with Israel as the farmer is doing with the land. That he is not simply disciplining them, punishing them, bringing about this judgment and this destruction for the sake of judgment and destruction. But that rather he's preparing the land to sow the seeds to produce the fruit. That's the purpose. There is a purpose in all of this. And... It shows, I think, two clear things. Firstly, it shows the necessity of coming judgment. The necessity of coming judgment. That God needs to do this. Just as the farmer needs to plough his field. You can't sow the seed if you don't do the ploughing. And so it shows the necessity of the judgment. But also it shows that the judgment has a purpose. And the purpose of judgment is tempered by mercy. That even in the midst of judgment, that God is exercising his mercy. And so, just as the farmer is not plowing for plowing's sake, but he's plowing for a purpose, so when God does what he does, the annulling of the covenant, the destroying of the land, the decree of destruction, this work that is scoffed at, as we saw this morning, this work that is mocked, this strange deed, verse 21, this alien work, when he does that, it is for 
a purpose and his purpose is always good. And so in verse 25, for he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. The idea is that God is speaking, verse 23, listen to his voice. In verse 26, he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Just as we are being spoken to, listen, Isaiah 28 verse 13, listen to what I'm saying. So Israel is being told to listen through the plowing. That God in that plowing is instructing. And God is teaching his people. There is then also a second illustration making a similar point. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Well, I guess not everybody today is familiar with dill and cumin seeds. Um, I, I, don't, I quite like using a little bit of cumin here and there. And on the odd occasion, there hasn't been any cumin in powder form in the store. And so I get the actual cumin seeds and just blend them or crush them up. And they are tiny little seeds. And the point of the, this is, is, I think, you know, fairly obvious. That different seeds require different methodologies for them to be threshed. The threshing is getting the seed and removing the the husk, as it were, and and getting it ready to produce fruit, to be sown. And the small seeds require smaller threshing. He, He says here specifically that a threshing sledge, I'm no expert in threshing, but a, a threshing sledge is certainly going to be on the larger side, as is a cartwheel. Can you imagine seeds so big and so hard that the only way to open them up is to crush them with a cartwheel? Have any of you ever tried to propagate mango and get inside that mango shell to get the actual seed inside of it? You know? I mean, there are big seeds out there, right? avocado and what have you. So they in their, in their process of threshing would use larger instruments, the sledge, the cartwheel, for larger seeds. And then for the, the dill and the cumin, there is simply a stick and a rod. You see, threshing is a, a violent job by its very nature, regardless of, um, regardless of how hard or light it is, the very nature is it has to cause some destruction. There has to be that separation. That's the whole nature of the threshing. When it's done, there is fruit that can come from it. But each seed is by the farmer threshed out according to the degree of force that is required for that particular seed. In other words, threshing is not a universal thing with regards to its force, its extent. It is is unique to each, each seed, each type of seed. So in verse 28, does one crush grain for bread? 
This is a parallel to what was said in the previous example, where it asked the question, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? The idea is that you're not plowing just to make nice holes in the ground, you're plowing because you're preparing the ground to sow. There's a purpose to your plowing. It's the same thing here. It's basically saying, do you crush grain for bread? And in the example here that is given, The point is, is that threshing doesn't go on forever any more than ploughing goes on forever. There is a purpose to the threshing of the seed. There is an objective. There is, there is a reason for it being done. And you don't do it just for the sake of doing it. You don't thresh for the sake of doing it. You don't plough for the sake of doing it. There's a purpose. There's, there is a goal at the end of the process. And so there is not an eternal threshing. I think sometimes when God puts us through trials and the trials go on and the trials go on, There is a temptation for us to feel as if God's threshing is eternal. This is a very clear statement to the contrary. That God's threshing is not eternal. It is not threshing forever when he drives his cartwheel over it. With his horses, he does not crush it. It is interesting... And you see, I hope, a sort of chiastic structure here in that we begin with the large stuff, the sledges and the carts. We go to the the deal and the cumin with a stick and a rod and then we're back again to the cartwheel. And the idea here is simply this. that The judgment he's spoken of in the previous section is... um, Referring to God's strange decree, his decree of destruction, his work that is strange, is ridiculous and would result in scoffing, that is going to result in something happening, a judgment against the whole earth. Now there's two things when we understand that context that we can make application to in this text here with regards to the threshing. And the first is this. If you're dill and if you're cumin, God isn't going to roll over you with a cart horse. A bruised reed he will not break. The God will use what is necessary, what is proportionate. That if you're a smaller seed and you require a bit more gentleness, then God will do that. There's a second application, and I believe it's the second application that is being made to Israel here. If God's rolling you over with a cart horse, there's a reason for it. You're a big seed, and he needs to do that work. That's the repetition of cart horse here. I don't think he's saying to Israel, you're just just cumin, you're just dill. I'm only going to use the stick. It's only a stick. That's not what he's saying. He's just said, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. That there will be this decree of judgment that goes over over all the land. Last week, when we saw the continuation of that revelation being developed by Daniel, and then further on into the book of Revelation, and we saw more of the specifics, we saw, particularly in Revelation 6, just the, the, the dramatic nature of destruction of pestilence and, and, and the earth being destroyed and war, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they're commonly known. And 
When there is a cart horse going over something, God needs a cart horse. That's his purpose. That's his necessity. I'm not sure quite how Israel was to be comforted by this. They are God's chosen people and God will ultimately be glorified through his dealings with them. I'm constantly reminded of Tevye's comment in Fiddler on the Roof. I know we're your chosen people, Lord, but why can't you just choose someone else for a change? The reality is, is that nation has again and again and again been unfaithful, produced no or bad fruit, that has been hardened and judged and blinded as a result, and it is a hard-hearted nation that requires a cart-horse kind of crushing for there to be any fruit. Many of us are like that. Sometimes God wants to do big things through us, and sometimes we're just stubborn. Sometimes both. And it requires a form of threshing. But even if you're a little bit of dill or a little bit of cumin, that stick looks mighty big when you're a little dill seed. Threshing always seems big, and it always seems harsh. But the final judgment of Israel... The hardest of hearts, the biggest of judgments for the final time, the one that will ultimately produce fruit, is obviously one that is going to be particularly harsh and particularly hard. And so, there is this reminder in verse 29. This also comes from Yahweh of hosts. We see the repetition of that name again and again, that whenever it comes up, it is a reminder to us of the might of Yahweh. He is Yahweh of hosts, hosts as in armies, as in speaking of his military might, but most commonly of heavenly hosts. Sometimes people miss this because they see Yahweh of hosts in the, in the uh, context of some earthly battle. And they say, ah, he's, he's Yahweh of hosts in the sense of earthly hosts. But they misunderstand that even though it might be saying that, that there is always this connection that's made between the earthly hosts and the heavenly hosts that are behind them. The earthly kings and the heavenly rulers that sit behind them in the unseen realm. And so Yahweh of hosts is a name that speaks of his might. And so when this this nation comes in and Israel makes a covenant with that nation in the future, Daniel 9, Revelation 6, and so on and so forth, when this happens... Just as it happened in the past, beginning of the chapter, the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria and and Ahaz then making his deal with Assyria. And when it is about to happen again right now, Israel, uh, sorry, Judah with Egypt coming up in the next chapter. When this happens, when Israel makes that covenant, when it trusts in other nations, you need to understand that God is sovereign over those nations. God will judge those nations. God will judge his nation. God will do all that will be done because he is Yahweh of hosts. When the judgment comes, 
God is still sovereign. When the earth is judged, God is still sovereign. When the nations are defeated, God is still sovereign. When the nations overcome Israel for a time, God is still sovereign. When you're winning, God's still sovereign. When you're losing, God is still sovereign. He remains Yahweh of hosts. This also comes from him. And then there is this reminder. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Now that phrase is familiar to you. Either you were here for Isaiah 9 or you've just been at church at Christmas a few times. But there is this prophecy that we saw in Isaiah 9. We're going back to the Ahaz section. We're going back to the section where Ahaz trusts in Assyria, trusts in another nation instead of trusting in Yahweh. That's our context. We said at the beginning of chapter 28 that this was a parallel to the um, book of Emmanuel in chapter 7 through 12. And in that section, Isaiah 9, we're told that there will be great darkness in the land. But then in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That though there will be a time of darkness for the people, that God will ultimately bring light to them. It talks in those verses that they've dwelt in a land of deep darkness, verse 2b, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There's a rejoicing at the joy of the harvest. What comes before harvest? Plowing, sowing, threshing. There's joy at the harvest for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There'll be burdens, there'll be oppressors, there will be trampling But there will be victory. God, though he is sovereign in Israel's judgment coming, will also be sovereign as he is over that darkness with the light that is to come afterwards. And how is that light ultimately going to come to Israel? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. We know who the child is. We were told that in chapter 7. There is going to be a virgin who gives birth and she will have a child. That's the child. The government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to rule. He'll be the king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gibor, Everlasting Father, or the Father of that which is eternal, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of, look at the name, look at the name, Yahweh of hosts will do this. So you have to understand as we keep saying, Isaiah is telling a story. 
his prophecy is unfolding chapter by chapter. So when Isaiah is saying, Yahweh of hosts is wonderful in counsel, you cannot forget Isaiah 9. He's referencing you back there. And what he's saying in Isaiah 9 is, yes, there will be time of great darkness, but light will come. And light will come through the son, through the child, who will be mighty God. Wonderful counselor. Remember that I said at the time the word wonderful here is not the usual word for wonderful. If I said you were wonderful or, 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 or you know, some, somebody else was wonderful, then I would use a particular Hebrew word. But this Hebrew word is a word that is only used of God. And of course, El Gibor, mighty God, is obviously referring to God. And so this child is going to be human, a child born, and yet will also be God. And he will have a kingdom that will never end. And who will accomplish this? Yahweh of hosts. Because he is Yahweh of hosts. Over all the hosts, both heavenly and earthly, as we've been seeing throughout Isaiah. And so what is Isaiah saying in referring us back to chapter 9 here at the end of chapter 28? What he's saying is this. He's saying when the dark times come, when the judgment comes, when the plowing comes, when the threshing comes, he is Yahweh of hosts. But after the darkness, remember, there'll be light. The, the plowing will come to an end because it has a purpose. The threshing will come to an end because it has a purpose. And God's purposes will come to fruition and they will not be thwarted because he is Yahweh of hosts. And I guess it's a reminder that it is through his Messiah, the God-man, that these things will come about. As I said to you at the start of chapter 28, we have a parallel here with regards to trusting in nations that we had in, uh, in chapter 7 through 12. And we've already seen in the middle section here reference to the stone, the tested stone, which we refer back to Isaiah 8. And here he's referring back to Isaiah 9. God will judge Israel. The final judgment will be so severe that people will look at it and see how ridiculous and strange it is and scoff that anything good could come from it. That this would even be the work of God. And it will be so significant that the entire earth will be impacted by it. And yet there is this reminder that God has his purpose. This isn't random, this isn't emotional outbursts, but rather that God is doing his purpose here. And so, as we come to the end of chapter 28, it comes to me as I close this section to just give us the same reminder that God gives Israel. Every time of ploughing comes to an end. Every time of threshing comes to an end. God is sovereign. He is Yahweh of hosts. He oversees the darkness and he oversees the light. And as he oversees the darkness, he has his purpose. His purpose is his glory. And if we are those who trust in him by faith, his purpose is our good, which is the same as his glory. Because that's the best thing for us. And so we trust him. We trust him in the time of ploughing. We trust him in the time of threshing. Because we know that the harvest will come. 
He is Yahweh of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel. He is excellent in his wisdom. And he can always be trusted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your your glorious word. May we learn to trust you as we see here Israel, Judah, trusting in other nations, trusting in, in, in the might that they can see, in turning to those around them, in being conscious of what might happen to them if they don't. They were just supposed to trust in you. May we do the same. May our trust be in you. May our trust be in your word. And may we walk through the darkness knowing that the ultimate end is your perfect light. The light of your son who is both God and man. Whose kingdom will have no end. Who is wonderful in counsel. Who is mighty God. The father of all that is eternal. The prince of peace. May our trust be in him alone. Amen. Thank you.